Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here at The Guardian, we love podcasts. Not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves, but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too. Every week, our column Here, Here, that's here as in hearing and here as in where, comes out filled with recommendations from you, our listeners. We sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer. These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Hear newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Brexit Means, the Guardian's weekly wade through the increasingly impenetrable and pestilential swamp that is Brexit. In this episode, we ask, how likely is it that Theresa May will end up losing the game of parliamentary ping-pong she is currently playing and what will be the consequences if she does? We wonder also whether, ten days from their next major summit and with progress on talks all but stalled, the EU27 have not now got more important things on their plate than Brexit, and what might be the consequences of that. We'll consider why the government decided to reach for and then double down on an obvious obfuscation, and that's a polite word for it, the so-called Brexit dividend, which it says will be used to fund a much-needed £20 billion increase in NHS spending over the next few years, and what that might say about the ongoing Brexit tug-of-war in the Commons. And we'll chew over Michel Barnier's latest pronouncements, principally on police and security cooperation after Brexit and the European Court of Human Rights rights and what they might say about the EU's apparent determination to make sure it treats the UK as a third country in almost all areas after Brexit. So, lots to cover this week. With me to discuss it all are Jennifer Rankin, The Guardian's Brussels correspondent, who's on the line, and Martin Kettle, associate editor and columnist. Welcome both. Martin, let's start with you, if we could, in this sort of long parliamentary slugfest that the Prime Minister faces over the next few weeks before MPs break up for their summer holidays. Um, the government last week defeated all 15 of those Lords' amendments on the EU withdrawal bill, but only apparently by making a promise to Tory rebels that Theresa May has since broken. The result was another heavy defeat in the Lords on Monday night, and peers have reinserted a meaningful vote amendment aimed at allowing MPs to direct the government if Parliament rejects its final Brexit deal. And now the bill, of course, is on its way back to the Commons, where Theresa May could face 
face her biggest defeat yet. It's all quite complex, this, Martin. Could you first sort of explain in, you know, as simply as you can, what's actually going on with this bill and why it matters? I think the short answer to that is no. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll give it a try. As you say, there were 15 amendments to the EU withdrawal bill in the Lords. Mm. The government accepted one of them, actually, and then the other 14 were either overturned by the Commons last week Mm. or the government struck some compromises. There there are a few compromises in there which are worth... You know, for Keeney's looking at uh, some okay. of the details. But the key one, the key, mm. the one that absolutely matters is the question of whether MPs will get what is called the meaningful vote. Mm-hmm. The meaningful vote is a, it would have meaning if talks reach the point where the government comes back to Parliament in November, whenever, and says, here's the deal, take it or leave it. Mm. And the meaningful vote is an attempt to stop it becoming a leave it option. That's what it is. And it feeds in various procedures, processes. It's a very long amendment. I've right. got it in front of me. I okay. mean, it's, it, it is itself three pages oh. long. Uh, but what it boils down to is that it insists that by uh, a date in January next year, mm-hmm. January 2019, in other words, two months before the scheduled departure, departure of the date. UK yeah. from the EU, uh, there would be a vote of the House of Commons to say what to do in this event. So, you know, that's what this amendment is all about. And that's the one that is being voted on on Wednesday this week in the House of Commons. Right. Uh, and obviously, we don't know yet, as we're recording this, whether the government will lose. I mean, clearly, um, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the pro-Brexit camp are very opposed to this amendment because they don't, as they say, want the government's hands to be tied uh, in, in future negotiations. Um, but... There is a, a large camp of, of, of rebels um, who are apparently at the moment at least prepared to vote for it. Now, what would be the consequences if the government lost this vote? I mean, it, the Brexters have, have sort of held up the prospect of, of this bringing the whole government down. Would that actually happen? Well, first of all, it would be a really big deal if the government was defeated on this. It would be a a moral defeat for Theresa May. And she's taken quite a lot of battering over the two years she's been prime minister. And this would probably be the most serious one Mm. of all. Um, Having said that, I don't think it would bring the government down. Uh, I mean, if, if it happened, she would basically have to accept it and would work with it. Remember, it is a compromise that has been uh, that Dominic Grieve, mm. who is the, the behind this, in the, the, yeah. the former Attorney General, who's the who's pr- putting this forward in the Commons, uh, thought he had struck with uh, with the government. Mm. So I mean, it's not it's not something that is completely a, a wrecking amendment. And Grieve himself has said, and all but two of the the Tory rebels on this, I think, would agree with him that they are not trying to prevent Brexit mm. by passing this amendment. Ken Clark, Anna Soubry, they'll probably vote against everything to do with Brexit right through to the bitter end. But the sort of other 14, 15, however many it is, some people say it's as high as 20, mm. and that there might even be government ministers prepared to do uh, this week what happened last week mm. uh, and resign in order to vote for this. So, I mean, I think it's very close. If it happens, I think there may be a challenge to Theresa May 
within the Conservative Party, but that process doesn't automatically mean that she will be ousted in favour of, uh, of of somebody else. Because first of all, there would have to be forty uh, eight members of the Tory backbenches would have to um, call for an, uh, a vote of confidence, right. not an election, a vote of confidence. confidence. So there has to be a vote of confidence first. I think Theresa May would win that. Mm. It's not at all obvious who could who could replace, who could replace her, and so I think she'd win that, and that would actually enhance her authority so in some respects bring it on okay. I suspect might be her her quiet view that's interesting I mean but and of course I mean even if she doesn't lose that one there are a string of other votes aren't there coming up really critical ones on trade and particularly on staying in the customs union that are going to give those Tory rebels several other chances to put a spanner in the bricks it works if you can call it a, yes a word. That, that, I mean, I know this is nerdy stuff, uh, and, and people get annoyed with the nerdiness of it, uh, and it, it can be soul-destroying. This is a nerdy podcast, uh, but it is. Uh, <laughs> having said that, yes, there, there are at least two other bills currently before Parliament, uh, the Trade Bill and the Sanctions Bill, which directly raise questions that are covered in these debates on the EU Withdrawal Bill, and I think it's likely as you say, there will be further votes. I think there is a majority within the House of Commons for uh, a customs union uh, settlement of some kind. And I think that as water will eventually find its way to the sea, mm. that majority will find its way uh, it through some settle. aspect yeah. of the process mm. to register itself and that the UK will, the Parliament will vote mm. for this. Now, I mean, whether that then translates into a deal with the EU 27 is entirely mm. another matter, as mm. we know. Mm. OK. Jennifer, how does all this look from Brussels? Um, I mean, I, you know, I assume there's now no hope at all of uh, there, at least, uh, uh, I mean, in, in EU capitals and in, in, in Brussels, of any real substantive progress on Brexit being announced at the, at the summit next week. And I mean, are EU leaders sort of just looking at all this aghast and, and starting to get uh, impatient to the point where maybe they might actually say something, I mean, issue some kind of kind of warning about the, the, the clock continuing to tick? I, I don't think at the moment there's a sense of impatience. But I mean, certainly it's, it's fair to say that the, the twists and turns of the, the British parliamentary process are not the talk of the town in Brussels. It's not really what what most people are thinking about. But for the EU's Brexit watchers, they are watching this very carefully. And they do see more sort of risks and upsets in the, in the British process than they do in the negotiations between the EU and, uh, and the British. So they're, they're keeping a careful eye on it. But I don't think it's got to the point where at leader level, it's, be it's becoming a big issue. And I, d and I think next week, I mean, I doubt very much we will see from EU leaders um, a significant warning on Brexit process. But you do get a sense from, from officials that there's kind of a tone of more in sorrow than in, than in anger, that if the British don't get Get their act together, then we can't really make very much progress on the negotiations. But n no one on the, in the EU camp really seems that sees that as a problem, and they see that really as, the, as a problem for the British. And the, the British will just have to work out their own, um, go through their own sort of agonies as to what they actually want from Brexit, and and and, how, and come up with with something realistic that the EU might agree to. So I think it's fair to say we're not going to see big progress next week at the, at the EU summit on Thursday and Friday. It, it was being touted a couple of months ago as a, as a crunch time for Brexit, but I think now that's been deferred to the autumn. 
And in fact, there's already talk, at least on the British side, of, of that sort of can being kicked down the road even further into November or December. But, but certainly from, a, from an EU point of view, they would rather keep to their, their autumn timing. But, but these things do have a tendency to slip. So we'll have to see nearer the time. Right. And, and of course, the going. EU, I mean, because the EU has, you know, has, has problems of its own now as well, doesn't it? I mean, there's a lot going on, uh, not just these sort of longer term questions of of reform, but particularly the Eurozone. But most particularly this week, we've really seen the the, the problem of migration um, raising its head again in Italy and also in Germany, where Angela Merkel is under, you know, a lot of pressure from the right wing of her own party. You mentioned earlier that, 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 you know, Brexit wasn't at the forefront of European minds. Where Where is it on the list, EU's list of priorities at the moment, would you say? Well, I think you, you raised a really important point is that, is that Brexit is fairly far down the list of priorities. And, and maybe if you, if you can, I can see in my head sort of five or six big existential questions for the EU touching on that migration, which you've mentioned, which is really the, the most difficult problem for the EU at the moment, because it's so, it, it touches on, on sovereignty and, and, and culture and identity. So it's something that can't be squared away with, with money or, or, or delays to a process, which which is usually the EU answer for dealing with a really difficult problem. So you've got this very difficult um, issue on migration, and then you've got the unsettled uh, question of Eurozone reform that continues to divide France and Germany. Then this big question of, of values in Central Europe, Poland, Hungary, whether they're, you know, the, the big questions over whether they are um, sort of falling away from, from common European standards on judiciary and rule of law. Uh, and, and aside to that, you have all this very hostile foreign policy environment for the EU with, and you, you often hear from, uh, from European diplomats, politicians, the sense that they're caught in the middle with an authorita- authoritarian China on one side and then unstable but declining Russia and, and now a very aggressive um, United States that no longer seems to be uh, Europe's friend. So I think, um, you know, amid all of these sort of swirling issues, then you have Brexit as well. And if anything, Brexit is, is, a, is a problem, but it's the one that's easiest to manage and seems at the moment to be causing the least anxiety right. to EU leaders. So you, can, you get this sense that even though from, from Brexiteers and even from some Remainers that EU leaders are ready at any moment to take up, you know, the the, the, the the mantle of Brexit and mm. try and um, try and reach some kind of deal with Theresa May. In fact, they're not really pressing to do that. Far from it. They're quite happy for Michel Barnier to to lead this process and and um, not to get involved at the moment. Uh, because yes, yeah, because as you say, it is very much a process um, and one that the, the EU is pretty much in control of. We'll come back to that in a little bit. I just want to talk, Martin, first a little bit about this question of the so-called Brexit dividend, which made the headlines over the weekend. Now, this is Paul Johnson of the highly respected Institute for Fiscal Studies. He said, payments to the EU will fall after Brexit, but tax revenues will fall more as a result of Brexit. That's the official position of the government, which has accepted the Office for Budget Responsibilities forecast that the public finances will be weakened to the tune of £15 billion a year. There is no Brexit 
dividend. Now, that's the view, I think it's fair to say, of the overwhelming majority of, of, of economists. So why does the government's website say that this funding for increase for the NHS is going to come partly from a Brexit dividend? And why has the Prime Minister repeated that? I think it's politics. I mean, Paul Johnson is clearly right. And as you say, other economists agree w- with him. And in fact, any savings as a result of Brexit are smaller than even the bit you quoted mm. uh, says, because the UK has agreed to pay £39 billion yes. for the divorce settlement with the EU. And presumably, uh, if a backstop agreement is reached, and, in, and if the UK gets some kind of uh, access agreement to aspects of the single market, mm which it may or may not do, of course, um, all that has to be paid for. So the idea that somehow leaving means there's all this money to washing around that can be spent on lovely things that, that people want rather than our membership of the EU, it's a lie, basically. It's untrue. So why did Theresa May make a thing of it? Well, I think she deliberately... This week she gave an interview to Andrew Marr on mm. Sunday about... The spending commitment she was about to make on the on the National Health Service, a, a, an extra twenty point five billion pounds a year by twenty twenty three, she framed it entirely in the context of this Brexit dividend, mm. so called. Uh, well, that was a very very deliberate decision on her part. Now there are two reasons for that. I think number one is that she is determined to schmooze the Brexiteers now, possibly because we all suspect that somewhere a little uh, further down the line, she's going to ask them to to, uh, sit on their hands and accept a deal they don't particularly want to Mm. do. So I think there's partly that kind of give the Brexit Brexit give the Brexit culture something to enjoy uh, while she can. I mean, the, the other reason is because the government hasn't actually decided where the money to pay for the NHS spending is going to come from. It hasn't decided that it's going to raise taxes, though May has given a hint that it may Mm. do that, but she hasn't said what it will add up to. uh, And it hasn't decided whether it's going to alternatively or in addition increase borrowing. Mm. So, I mean, all that is still being fought out between the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, and spending ministers uh, and and Downing Street. So, I mean, she wanted to say something about the NHS because the 70th anniversary of the NHS is coming up and she wanted to to control that narrative when that uh, that anniversary comes up in July. But she isn't in a position to say uh, how it's going to be paid for. And uh, I think Labour, for once, I'm not a great supporter of Labour on many things (laughs) at the moment, but... You know, it was absolutely right to say if, if Labour had put forward this kind of spending plan on the NHS, they'd have been, they'd have been mm. taken to mm. the cleaners about the Im- imprecision and lack yes. of detail yes. uh, about it. Yeah. This is a very, very big issue as well. I mean, it's the other big issue in British politics, as well as Brexit. How much is the yes. British government going to... St- on social services and uh, public services yeah, in general. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Jennifer, this whole business, this Brexit dividend business, must surely be the kind of pronouncement that that makes EU officials and and, and leaders that you know rather doubt that, that the UK's reliability as a negotiating partner is it, or or is it recognised there that this is really all for domestic consumption? I think largely it is recognised that this is all about politics, and and it's priced in that. Uh, 
the EU see Theresa May in a very weak position, that they that officials understand that she will make outrageous statements sometimes for the for the sake of electioneering. But of course, I think it will it will go down badly. It's 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 dishonest, and um, if in, you know, in a town of of technocrats, that's, uh, no one's going to be impressed by her her maths or her um, her way of presenting her sums. And and also, I think it's it's really worth stressing that it's a bad. It seems a bad decision for the Prime Minister to tie herself up in knots on, on a Brexit dividend when some point further down the line, as Martin rightly says, she is going to have to uh, offer some money to the EU if she, if she wants or if a future British government wants the UK to participate in, in EU programmes. If, oh, if the UK wants to be part of the EU research mm. programme, that's going to cost money. Cost money. Yeah. And we've already heard from various MEPs that they're not going to countenance the UK getting the good deal it gets now, where it actually gets more out of the EU research programme than it pays in. Mm. So I think that um, in future, the UK is going to find itself in a, in a less advantageous position when it comes to paying into EU programmes. And certainly, of course, the rebate goes up in smoke uh, as soon as uh, Brexit happens. So... So I think this is, it's not, a, it's not only bad politics from a domestic point of view of being just fundamentally dishonest and not having the debate about the NHS that we should be having, but it's also bad politics from an EU point of view when we do get to those decisions that come along later down the line. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's lastly then have um, a little look at what Michel Barnier has just said. Uh, this is literally just before we um, recorded this podcast. Uh, the EU's chief negotiator was giving a speech in Vienna um, in which he made it pretty clear that although there could be cooperation between the EU and the UK on security and intelligence after Brexit, it would be to nothing like the extent of the current arrangement and certainly nothing like the extent that the UK would like. Uh, for example, just a, a little taster of some of the, the things that Barnier said, um, Britain cannot stay in the European arrest warrant, for example, uh, simply because the European arrest warrant is linked to an acceptance of freedom of movement, the rulings of the European Court of Justice and the Charter of Fundamental Rights. Um, he also said there that there would obviously be an exchange of information after Brexit between the EU and the UK, but there could be no access for the UK to EU-only data or Schengen-only databases. The key quote, I suppose, the, 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 real, the real thrust of, of what he said was this. Um, he, he said, the UK's recent paper on security expresses a desire to keep the benefits of EU membership, the benefits of EU membership. But this EU ecosystem is founded on common rules and safeguards, shared decisions, joint supervision and implementation, and a common court of justice. If you leave it, you lose the benefits of this cooperation. You are a third country because you have decided to be so and you need to build a new relationship. Now, Jennifer, um, you know, Barnier also made a big deal. It's a, a phrase that he uses a lot these days um, about the, the, the UK being obliged to accept the consequences of its decision um, and, the, and to face the facts, the sort of Brexit facts. Um, and he recalled repeatedly also for sort of more realism um, on the part of the British government. Is, is this all part of a sort of a, you know, a, a, a sustained campaign to, to force the UK really to, to look the facts in the, in the face? Yes, I think you've really sort of picked up on the, the nub of the, the speech. And, and this is a theme that he has returned to again and again, that there is this frustration um, 
for him and his team that the EU, uh, the UK, are simply not facing up to the facts, and that the, and that the EU would like to say, well, Brexit means Brexit. This is a choice the UK has made, so out means out, and you can't be you can't be treated um, uh, as an EU member state and have all the have all the benefits mm. without without um, signing up to all the rules. And when it comes to certain areas of justice and home affairs, it gets deeply, deeply complicated. For example, on the European arrest warrant that you mentioned, there are several EU member states where in the constitution they, they cannot extradite uh, um, or one of their nationals mm. if, um, if it turns out that that would be to a non-EU member state. So there are sort of constitutional bars that cannot be changed. And again, when it comes to data protection, Barnier also raised this and said this is a point of primary law and it's clear that the EU doesn't want to change its primary law to accommodate the UK. But nonetheless, the EU has made a lot of or has made a number of deals with, with non-EU countries. It is possible. It's just going to be hugely complicated and difficult when you think about the extradition treaty the EU signed with Norway and Iceland. That took more than a decade to put together. So I think it's, it's obviously it's a hugely complex issue. And I think once you actually get into the detail of it, into the real negotiations, it's going to be harder for the EU as well because there is a lot at stake. Um, for instance, with the, the UK handing over, has handed over 10,000 criminals or, or suspected criminals to the EU27 since 2004. So there's, a, there's an awful lot at stake. And, and I think at the moment we're still in a stage of, of shadow boxing on these issues where it's very easy for the EU just to, to roll out its red lines, but at some point there will be a, there will be a time when both sides have to really sit down and to work out you know what kind of agreements can be pieced together. But and it, it is possible to find those agreements; they just will be very very they, difficult they to, to negotiate. Yes, um, Martin, and fi- and finally, I mean th- th- this is going to put a few cats among a few pigeons in Westminster, this kind of language, isn't it, that Barnier really is increasingly using, I mean, and particularly because sort of security and intelligence were, you know, uh, touted, have been touted for a long time as, as Britain's sort of strongest card in the, in the negotiations. Yes, I guess that's right. And, I mean, Britain has always had a slightly um, in and out, one foot in, one foot out relationship with the justice and security part of the mm. EU project. Theresa May herself, when she was Home Secretary, was much involved in in being very selective about which aspects of that the UK she would opt to, back yes, into. Yeah. Um, and and I think pos- it's arguable that that's sort of slightly um, fixed in her mind, the idea that the UK can leave the EU and opt back into, into the bits it's exactly. prepared to opt as, back as into. As a great phrase, um, for just to interrupt that great phrase, which I can't repeat often enough from Xavier Bittel, the the Luxembourg Prime Minister, who really summed up Brexit, I think, perfectly a few months ago now, where he said basically sort of words to the effect of bloody Brits, not quite that in that language, but, you know, damn Brits, you know, when they were in, all they wanted were opt-outs, and now they want to be out and all they want are opt-ins. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. Ivan Rogers, the former UK Mm. diplomat, uh, who is a great authority on these things, Mm. he made a speech, he gave a speech the other day where he was saying that, you know, when Britain was inside the fence of the EU, it wanted to be as close to the fence as possible and as far away from the centre as it possibly could. And now it wants to be outside the fence and as close to the fence as possible 
and 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 it's the same it's the same uh, metaphor mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. uh, i mean i think both sides in this uh, have their own um self deceptions i mean the british self deception is the idea that the clock will be stopped uh, one minute before the before mm-hmm. midnight uh, in this process and everything will get sorted out right. somehow in yes. some massive yeah. horse trading yeah. uh, exercise and and that's not true but equally i think the commission has got its own self deception which is you know, that it is the embodiment of a rule a very much a rules based mm. law based system and and these are the rules and and you know if you can't play no if you can't operate within the rules then that's no good actually there is going to be give there, there are going to be pragmatic political bits of this mm. if it gets that far there are going to be countries within the eu who think well if the uk is prepared to pay a bit of money into the eu budget uh, at a time when it's a, a pretty well, unfashionable thing yeah. and unpopular with our voters etc etc that you know maybe we could cut a deal here especially if it allows us in the german case to export our cars and etc mm. etc et so i mean there are ways and ways that that you know there would be a bit of a, a a convergence there but i think on the justice and security point more specifically it's certainly true that the uk government is deeply committed to the idea that it remains you know a serious ally part, part uh, and part, part of, of the process European landscape, um, security uh, absolutely uh, and 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 for, and for very good reason you know it's definitely in the uk's interests to do that we britain want to make a deal on this yes. This is preliminaries, okay. I think. OK, I well, agree we'll, with see how, we'll see how it plays out. That's about it for this week, I'm afraid. Uh, my thanks to Jennifer and Martin for joining me. Please do subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. And you can email us too at Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Max Sanderson. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.